What do you need? What do you need from God? And, and we all know the difference between wants and needs, right? The, the, the difference is, is that uh, there's a necessity when we're speaking of need. Uh, I remember one time growing up, my, my father was trying to teach my sister and I the, the difference between wants and needs. So over dinner, my dad would often open his Bible and read kind of a short uh, study from God's Word. He's trying to kind of engage us. He's asking us questions. You know, Michael, Kimberly, what's the difference between wants and needs? What do you want? What's something you want? Want something you need? So, uh, so my sister would always kind of answer first. You got to remember, this is the 90s. She had this awesome kind of wave thing going. Well, actually, this way, right? Uh, just think of my hair, but just about three inches more, uh, and which requires like a lot of hairspray. Uh, and I would walk up to my sister every once in a while, being the annoying little brother, and kind of pat it on the, you know, the head, and it would spring back into place. And I say, very natural. Uh, and so she does that to me now. Um, and and so it comes around to her, right? She goes first, and my dad says, so, so Kimberly, what's what's something you need? And without like missing a beat, hairspray uh, is like the answer. But that's not quite something we need, is it physically? So my dad was trying to connect something physically we need. What do you physically need in this world? And then try to transition into just spiritually, what do we need? What do you, what do you need from God? What is it that you absolutely cannot live eternally without? What do you need from God? I think there's but really one short answer you could give. We need His mercy. We need God's mercy. And that's what we're going to think about this morning from Luke's Gospel, from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 43. We need the mercy of God. And we need to humbly and prayerfully call out to God to be merciful to us. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, beginning there in verse 9. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 877. And while you're turning there, let's remember kind of where we are in our study in the course of Luke's Gospel. We, we've come to learn during the course of our study that Luke's Gospel is a, it's a Greco-Roman biography. It's an orderly and accurate eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching. And this summer we've been studying kind of a 10-chapter segment of Jesus' uh, teaching as he's walking along the road to Jerusalem. He's explaining the truth of God's kingdom to his disciples. Jesus, he, he knows what awaits him at the end of this road. Shortly after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he will be rejected. He will suffer. He will be crucified and killed. And He will be raised from the grave. Jesus is walking to His death. And He knows it. And as I thought about uh, this reality this past week, I was struck by how Jesus focuses His teaching on really the most important things. Here Jesus is in the last stretch of His earthly teaching ministry. He, he's doing really what anyone would do as they approach their death. Jesus is communicating the most important truths that his disciples need to know and understand. And when we studied Luke chapter 17 verses 20 through chapter 18 verse 8 last week, we heard Jesus explain to his disciples that the kingdom of God has come and that it will come in full. And the only appropriate response to this reality then is to believe in him and to keep believing. 
the kind of persistent faith that Jesus' disciples are to be marked by is a kind of faith that prays and keeps praying. It should not surprise us that the rest of Jesus' teaching in chapter 18 continues to focus in on the essential themes of faith and the kingdom of God. In fact, faith and the kingdom of God are really deeply connected. You can't get into the kingdom of God without true faith. But faith is only true if it is characterized by humility. Faith is only true if it's located in the only person who is worthy of trust. And faith is only true if it is filled with hope in the mercy of God. This is what we learn from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 43. And this text forces us to ask ourselves, do I have this kind of faith? Am I marked by this kind of faith? So if I had to summarize this passage, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 43, in a single sentence, this would be it. True faith humbly trusts in the mercy of Jesus. True faith humbly trusts in the mercy of Jesus. This is what Luke chapter 18 verses 9 to 43 is all about. We're going to study this passage in three sections under three headings. First, the nature of true faith. Second, the object of true faith. And third, the hope of true faith. Let's begin with our first point, the nature of true faith. And here we're going to look at verses 9 through 30 of chapter 18. But as we think about this, let's just begin with the, uh, verses 9 through 14. So take a look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, where we see the nature of true faith. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We need to take notice of the top and the tail of this parable, the beginning and the end. At the top, in verse 1, we get a helpful explanation from Luke. And then at the tail in verse 14, uh, sorry, I meant verse 9 when I said at the top. Uh, verse 14, the tail, we get the central principle of the parable from Jesus. At the top, Luke orients us to the main issues at play in the parable. This parable is about trust and treatment. It's about trusting in your own righteousness and treating yourself more highly than you ought. And of course, that has implications on how you treat others, as we see in these verses. Only those who treat themselves with a kind of exalted importance can treat others with a degrading contempt. And more profoundly still, this has implications for how God treats you. This is evident by what Jesus says there in the tale. Work hard to exalt yourself before God and you'll be humbled. Humbly confess that you are not worthy before the perfectly righteous and holy God 
and you will be exalted. You see, the way up is down. So here is the first lesson we learn about the nature of true faith. True faith is humble. Friends, brothers and sisters, I'm not sure that we actually immediately grasp just how profoundly uh, these verses expose our pride. Luke, he sets us up and we don't even see it coming. We read this parable and we naturally think to ourselves, this Pharisee's a bad guy, he's a terrible guy. And do you know what we're doing? We're treating him with contempt. Verse 9. We're looking down on him. And you know what you have to do in order to look down on someone, right? You have to exalt yourself. Verse 14. That's part of the punch of this parable. We're drawn in, we take a side, we look down and treat with contempt one of the figures in the story, and Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You see, in hearing this parable, Jesus means for us to come to see ourselves as the self-righteous Pharisee. And he pleads with us to humble ourselves like the tax collector. For too long we have been comparing ourselves and our works to other men and women. We're, we're not like them. We define our righteousness, our holiness, our goodness in, in a negative fashion. That's verse 11 there. We don't do this or, or we don't do that. We don't struggle with this sin or we don't struggle with that sin. We don't drink or chew or go with girls or guys who do. It's just not our sin, our struggle, right? And then we set forth our righteousness positively. That's verse 12. For a complete picture, you know, because God's got to have the whole picture. I read my Bible and pray every day. I give generously to the church. I turn up to pray. I'm on Bible study and community group every week, even the weeks that it doesn't mean I just sit outside my car and pray for the leader, you know. We, we trust in our own righteousness. We trust in ourselves. Now, we, I think we must be careful not to obliterate the good and right pursuit of holiness. Uh, there are certain things that we should not do. Moreover, there are things that we should do. The Old Testament and New Testament are full of prohibitions and proscriptions. Our God is to be obeyed. It was not wrong for the Pharisee to fast twice a week and to give tithes of all that he got. It was positively good and right. It was also positively good and right that he did not unjustly extort money from other people. It was positively good and right that he was faithful to his spouse. What was wrong was that he was trusting in his righteousness instead of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He was trusting in his sacrifices instead of the sacrifice being offered for him. He's gathered for evening worship there where a sacrifice for sin is being offered. But there he is standing before God, trusting in what he has done. How do we find our way through this minefield? How do we discover whether or not we're trusting in ourselves? I think it is discerned in large part by whether or not we treat others with contempt. It's discerned in large part by, by hearing ourselves say what the Pharisee says there in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, even this tax collector. You, you've caught yourself looking down on others with contempt, haven't you? I mean, even if it's just in your mind, be, be honest. Haven't you yourself said, well, I'm glad that's not my sin. I'm glad it's not my struggle. I don't want to be right there. I'm not there. The, the other way, I think, we determine whether or not we're trusting in ourselves is by asking ourselves, do I pray like that tax collector? 
Is my heart's posture like his physical posture in prayer? Did you see see that his posture, how it's described? You notice he, he stood far off, that he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. See, he was so ashamed and grieved by his sin. He knew that he offended God. Friend, are you ashamed of your sin? Are you grieved by how grotesque your sin is in the sight of the holy God? Do you know that you deserve to face the eternal wrath of God for your sin? And have you cried out to Him for mercy? If we want to be more like the repentant tax collector, we have to see that we're too much like a Pharisee. When the tax collector asks for mercy, do you know what he's asking for? The original Greek makes plain that he is asking God to propitiate him. Uh, That means that he's asking God to receive the sacrifice that bears his wrath away from God's sight. Remember, they're there at the temple for, for evening worship, for evening sacrifice. Sacrifice is being offered for sin. So do you see the difference between what these two men were trusting in? The Pharisee was trusting his own righteousness. The tax collector was trusting in the sacrifice, in the blood of the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of his sins. He was trusting in the substitutionary sacrifice for his sins. The one who stood in his place and bore the punishment that his sins deserved. This is the nature of true faith. Humbly trusting, not in yourself, not in your own works of righteousness, but in the righteous work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Two men went up. You notice this, Jesus uses language going up and going down. Two men went up to the temple to pray. But only one came down justified. Only one was truly saved and counted righteous in God's sight. It was not the one who appeared righteous, but the one who abandoned all hope of any righteousness in himself. Children, youth, young adults, do you ever feel just kind of too messed up to receive God's forgiveness? Do you you feel that your sin is just so, your, your heart is just so filled with sin that all you want to do is kind of cover it up? Do you worry about where you stand with God? I have good news for you. It's this good news that Jesus tells us here. Jesus came for broken people, for broken sinners like you and me. He calls us to come to Him like this tax collector, recognizing that we have nothing to give Him in exchange for His righteousness. He calls us to cast ourselves at His feet and to trust Him for His mercy. And Jesus is trustworthy. I have a question for each one of us here today. Not just children, but including children and youth and young adults. Each one of us here today. You got up. You came up to church today. You came up to pray, just like that Pharisee and tax collector. You came up to sing. You came up to sit and listen. Have you asked God for mercy? Will you go down justified? You will... Only if you abandon all hope of trusting in yourself, trusting in your works, trusting in your righteousness, and instead come to Jesus in humble, childlike faith. This is what we see in verses 15 to 17. Read Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. 
Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. Luke, you see here, he moves us right from one scene to the next. We effectively move from a parable to an, an active parable, to a living parable. It's being played out right before the eyes of the disciples. Here the disciples have the opportunity to put into practice what Jesus had just taught one verse earlier. But they apparently missed the point. Here the disciples are going to be guilty of looking down upon, of holding in contempt, these parents and their children. These parents were bringing their children to Jesus in order to have Him touch them and bless them. And this was a common thing in Jesus' day and age among Jewish families. Parents or older siblings would often take children or brothers and sisters to a respected rabbi in order to have them pray for and bless their children. And that is just what Jesus seems to be doing here. Jesus' disciples, however, they rebuked these people. They pushed them away. Perhaps because they thought Jesus was too busy or, or, or too important for them. But Jesus, he's nothing like the Pharisees. He doesn't exalt himself and look down on others. Instead, he stoops down to scoop these children up into his arms. He wants to draw them in, not drive them out. He wanted to do this because he loved them, and because he wanted to teach his disciples that children, in their, in their natural inclination to trust adults, embody the very kind of faith, the very kind of humble faith required to enter the kingdom. We see this kind of total and utter dependence when a child, before they can swim, stand on the edge of a pool and jump into their mother or father's arms. We see this when an infant, we realize that an infant, they cannot feed themselves. They're helpless. They're totally dependent upon their parents. The manner in which the kingdom of God is to be received is like that of a little child, utterly dependent upon God, helpless, but not hopeless, because He is God, and He is merciful. Notice, too, that the kingdom of God is something to be entered. The reception of the kingdom of God and the entrance into the kingdom of God are intimately tied together. Those who receive the king of the kingdom in utter dependence are the ones who will enter into the kingdom. This is the second lesson we really learn about the nature of true faith. True faith is utterly dependent upon God. But what happens next? Next we meet a man who is trusting in his riches and in his righteousness. Just as the Pharisee was trusting in his righteousness, so this man was trusting in his riches. Take a look there at verse 18. We'll read through verse 30. Luke 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more many many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life I, I hope that you're seeing the connections that are really running through verses 9 through 30 these three scenes are connected by the necessity of true humble dependent faith for salvation Justification, verse 14, entrance into the kingdom, verse 17, and inheriting eternal life, verse 18, are all really different sides of the same diamond. So here in verses 18 through 30, we are confronted with a scene of a young man who, unlike the tax collector, and unlike those young children, is not trusting in Jesus, but in his good works and in his great wealth. He first identifies Jesus as good teacher. And this conversation seems to be off to a good start. In fact, Jesus picks up on this. It's likely that this rich man, young man, simply wants to be respectful to the man who is presumably going to tell him what he must do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus, he sees something more in that statement. In that day, every faithful Jew would know that God, God is the one who is supremely good. And so to ascribe to that divine quality to Jesus is, in the very least, curious. Jesus wonders whether or not this man sees that he is, in fact, God. The man seems to be so close to recognizing Jesus, but the conversation that follows makes it clear that he's actually very far away. The young man thought that he had done all that was necessary in order to enter into the kingdom. From his vantage point, he kept all the commandments, including the commandments of having, not having murdered or committed adultery. And when you think about it, it's pretty astounding. Given Jesus' claim in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching, you may recall in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that murder and adultery were not merely outward acts, but inner acts of the heart too. We murder others through anger in our hearts. We commit adultery when we lust after one who is not our spouse. In verse 22, Jesus informs him that he still lacks one thing. You, you, you know what he lacks, don't you? He lacked the humble, childlike faith and trust in Jesus. This man was trusting in everything he had done and everything he had. He wanted to get to heaven his own way, on his own righteousness and riches. He did not want to follow Jesus. What about you? This man was not willing to entrust himself to Jesus and to Jesus' care for his disciples. What about you? Is, is Jesus enough 
Is Jesus enough or do you need to have riches? If you had nothing, would Jesus be enough? Would his love and his kingdom be enough? You know, this encounter leads Jesus to teach his disciples a lesson on the road to Jerusalem in verses 24 and 25. Jesus explains to his disciples that it is difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not difficult because they're rich. Being wealthy is not a sin. And being wealthy does not automatically bar one from the kingdom of God. No, it is difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God because so often money and possessions tempt us to trust them for safety and security when God and God alone is our rock and refuge. Money and possessions even tempt us to trust them for access. Right? If you've got enough money, you can get into almost any place you want to. Anywhere but the kingdom of God. Jesus' disciples were astonished and even concerned at his teaching. They asked him, who can be saved? You see how they view this as a matter of salvation? Perhaps Jesus' disciples thought that wealth was a marker of God's blessing and favor. In fact, that was a common belief in the first century. It was the first century version of the prosperity gospel. Money can't buy the love of God. Money can't buy access to His kingdom. When Jesus tells His disciples in Luke chapter 18, verse 27, that what is impossible with man is possible with God, He was telling them that the humble faith that's required for entering the kingdom of God is impossible with man, but is not impossible with God. The humble faith that God requires is a generous gift that He alone gives. As the Apostle Paul says, reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That young man boasted in his good works, and he depended upon his great wealth. If God alone gives the faith that is required for entrance into the kingdom, then how could the disciples be certain that they be welcomed into the kingdom. Can't you sense the desperation in Peter's statement there in verse 29? Peter reminds Jesus that he and the other disciples, they've left everything to follow Jesus on this road. And Jesus reassures Peter and the disciples that their humble, God-dependent faith will not return void. No, those who abandon trusting in their righteousness and riches will be rewarded with the righteousness of Jesus, the riches of heaven, which was the answer to the man's question in verse 18, wasn't it? Question, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Answer, abandon your trust in your righteousness and riches and come to me in humble, childlike faith and you will be rewarded with a gift of Jesus' righteousness and the riches of heaven. True faith is humble and recognizes that before the holy God, we are full of sin and need forgiveness. True faith is childlike, abandoning all hope of trusting in our righteousness or riches. So if this is the nature of true faith, what it is characterized by, then what, or better yet, who, is the true object of faith? 
in verse 13, the tax collector has already pointed us in the right direction on that question. The object of true faith is the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And in verses 31 to 34, Jesus presents himself as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin, as the object of our faith. And this is the second point that we want to consider. The object of our faith. Read Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. These four verses communicate five things. Four verses that communicate five things. Jesus tells his disciples where they are going, why they are going, what will be accomplished by his going, how it will be accomplished, and then in verse 34, we're given the disciples' reaction to this news. This is actually the fourth time that Jesus has predicted his death in Luke's Gospel. And in fact, it might just be Jesus' most emphatic, most certain, uh, and full prediction. I don't know if you noticed that, that that word will really there appears five times. Jesus was trying to stress this. This will be accomplished. will be delivered. will be mocked. will kill him. will rise. Jesus is just stressing the certainty of what would meet him and what he would meet at the end of this road in Jerusalem. First, Jesus tells his disciples where they're going. He reminds them that their destination is Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus will not be deterred from his final destination on earth. He's a man on a mission. And then Jesus tells his disciples why they are going there. They're going to Jerusalem so that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Just note each of those phrases carefully. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus will not leave anything undone that has been written about the Son of Man. Now we should recall this title, Son of Man, is one of Jesus' favorite titles to use in His earthly ministry. This title, Son of Man, is a reference to the Messiah who is de depicted in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There the Messiah was depicted and predicted. Jesus is declaring himself to be that Messiah. And he is saying that everything that was written by the prophets will be accomplished in Jerusalem. So let's go on a quick tour of some, not all, of the prophetic predictions in the Old Testament. No need to turn to these passages uh, now. I'd encourage you to perhaps write these passages down, return to them, consider them later this afternoon, what our Savior is saying here. And what I've done here is I've taken one messianic prediction from each genre of Scripture in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, since I've already mentioned Daniel 7, we can consider the apocalyptic genre cover. Uh, the very first messianic prediction in the Old Testament comes in Genesis 3. 
where after the fall, God graciously promises that he will send a son, his son, we come to find out in the New Testament, to crush the head of the serpent. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, Jesus was wounded, wounded unto death on the cross. His heel was bruised. But he bruised the head of the serpent by his resurrection from the dead, which is precisely what he predicts in verse 33 of our text, isn't it? The message of a coming seed and son continues to unfold across the rest of the Pentateuch and develops further along in the histories, in particular in the histories we see that this seed and son will be a king from the line of David. We see this perhaps no more clearly than in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 11 and 13, and God makes this promise to King David. He says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Note carefully, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if you've cheated and uh, read ahead in our text this morning that you'll notice that the blind man sitting on the road identifies Jesus as the son of David. Indeed, he is the son of David who is declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. If you take a look at Jesus' prediction there in verse 32, you'll notice that Jesus said he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. So keep that in mind as I read this poetic yet prophetic prediction from Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage? Which is to say, why do the Gentile nations? Why do the Gentile nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers together take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. Not only did Jesus predict that He would be handed over to the Gentiles, but Jesus also predicted in verses 32 and 33 that He would be mistreated, crucified, and killed. And who can forget the prophetic prediction of Isaiah 53, where Jesus' crucifixion is so clearly in view. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 to 9, we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Should the Lord Jesus tarry and we make it to the month of November, we'll look at the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction here when we study Luke chapters 22 through 24. What we can't miss right now is that Jesus is declaring himself to be the end and goal of all of the Old Testament prophetic predictions and promises of our salvation. Everything that was written about the Son of Man. He is the one, the Messiah we've been waiting for. He is the sacrifice that we've been waiting for. He is the object of our faith. Everything that Jesus undergoes, being delivered over, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed, and raised from the grave, he undergoes 
for the salvation of his people. Jesus endured all of the things that we deserve to endure because of our sin. And here he is effectively saying to his disciples, at the end of this road, I'm going to stand as a substitute for my people. I'm going to be the lamb who was slain for them, just like the Old Testament predicted. I'm going to endure what they deserve to endure in order to save them from the punishment due to their sins. Jesus is the object of our faith, the one in whom we place our hope and trust. And at the time that Jesus said this to his disciples, they did not understand it. You see that there, don't you? They didn't grasp it. And in fact, Luke actually tells us that these things were positively hidden from them. The disciples can, I think, to some degree, be forgiven for their failure to apprehend the full measure of what Jesus was saying. Why was this understanding hidden from them? Who was concealing it from them? Why? Luke does not say who? Who was concealing it from them? Luke does not say. Still, given that we've just been told that God's sovereign preparation from history through promises and through His actions, God's sovereign preparation for history for this moment, the implication is, is that our God, who knows all things, decided not to disclose the fullness of what Jesus is teaching to His disciples at that point in time. And perhaps this was for the best. We know from other gospel accounts, that at least on one other occasion, when Jesus spoke of his coming suffering, that Peter tried to rebuke Jesus and alter his course to take him off this road of going to the cross. But we see here that Jesus will not be deterred. These things will happen. And from a literary standpoint, verse 34 calls us as readers to ask ourselves whether or not we fully understand what Jesus is saying. Do we see, do we understand spiritually, do we spiritually perceive and see that He is the promised and predicted Messiah? While the disciples do not see this, though their eyes may be physically opened to the Savior right in front of them, like, like do not see this. Do you know who does see this? A blind man. A blind man sees that Jesus is the Son of David. He sees that Jesus can heal him. And he has faith in Jesus. A blind man helps us to see that our only hope is Jesus. So let's turn to consider and learn from him. What, what to see what he sees. And this is our third point. The hope of true faith. Let's uh, read Luke chapter 18 verses 35 to 43. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately 
he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You see there in verse 35, Luke tells us that Jesus drew near to Jericho. And do you know what that signals for us? This tells us that we're almost to Jerusalem. We're almost at the end of the road. As Jesus was making his way along the road, this blind man became aware that Jesus was passing by and he did not want Jesus to pass him by. And so he cried out to Jesus. Though he could not physically see with his eyes, he saw spiritually with his heart. And notice the transition that takes place from verse 37 to 38. When this blind man is told that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, what does he do? He cries out to Jesus, not of Nazareth. That is who Jesus is. He cries out to Jesus, son of David. Did he mishear those who were passing, told him he was, he was passing by? I don't think so. I think he knew what he was saying. This is the first time in Luke's Gospel that Jesus is actually personally, by another individual, another human person, identified as the Son of David. We're certainly told of Jesus' Davidic heritage in the first four chapters of the Gospel. It's kind of hinted at all throughout. But coming from the lips of another human being, this is the first time, from a blind man nonetheless, this is the first time that Jesus is identified as an heir of David, making his way to the place where David sat on his throne making his way to the place where Jesus will take up his throne on the cross. This blind man clearly sees that Jesus is the great messianic king, bringing the blessings of the kingdom. And what are the blessings of the kingdom? Well, in Jesus' ministry, we certainly see that he's able to renew broken bodies and to restore sight. We've seen that throughout this gospel. But more importantly, the king of the kingdom can extend mercy, forgive sins, save sinners. Did you notice that this blind man cries out for mercy? Just like that tax collector cried out for mercy. Did you notice that he was brought to Jesus? Like Jesus encouraged those little children to be brought to him. And did you notice Jesus' eagerness? Jesus' willingness to hear the cries of this man? He was utterly dependent. He could do nothing for himself. Other people had to bring him to Jesus. And he honored Jesus by calling him son of David in verse 38. And he humbled himself before Jesus in verse 41. He called Jesus, Lord, you are the master. He begged Jesus to restore his sight. He could not see his Savior. But his Savior could see his faith. And that's why Jesus said in verse 42, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Now here's the thing, Jesus has already said something like this once before in Luke's Gospel. Back in Luke chapter 17, you might remember the story of Jesus and the ten lepers. Jesus heals these ten lepers, and only one of the lepers, they return to Jesus to give thanks. In Luke chapter 17, verse 19, Jesus said to this leper who returned, Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. And that word well, in Luke chapter 17, verse 19, that word well here in verse 41, the same word, in the original language, in the Greek, the word well is sozo. Along with meaning to, to, to be made whole, uh, it also means to deliver or to save. In other words, Jesus is saying to this man, recover your sight, your faith in me has saved you. This healing of the blind man was about more than the recovery of this man's 
physical sight. It was about the salvation of this man's soul. Because he saw who Jesus truly was, and he believed. Do you see that? Is that your hope? And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. Friends, I think from every possible angle he can, Luke has been trying to help us actually see Jesus. He's been trying to help us see that true faith humbly trusts in the mercy of Jesus. He's been trying to help us see our pride and our attempts at self-justification and our trust in anything and everything really but Jesus. He has been showing us that Jesus is our only and all-sufficient Savior. And the only question that remains for us is this. Do we see? Have we humbled ourselves in utter dependence upon Jesus for salvation? Do we see that that's what we need from Him? That we need mercy from Jesus? Would you come to Him in repentance and faith? Turn and believe. This morning... We have all been confronted with the living Christ here on the pages of Scripture. Do you see Him? Don't let Him pass you by. Cry out to Him for mercy. Don't let this day pass you by without calling out, crying out to Jesus for salvation. Is Jesus your only hope of salvation before the throne of Almighty God? When you are called to give an account before the throne of God, before the throne of the God who made you and gave you life and breath, you will be called to account. Will you say, I I'm not like other men. You know, the ones who really actually deserve to go to hell. I honored my father and mother. You know, my father and mother are not the easiest people to honor. I, I, I didn't murder anyone. That's pretty good, right? I was faithful to my spouse. I didn't cheat on my taxes. You know, even though the government, I think, may have cheated me a couple of times. I, I, I kept my contractual obligations. Will we really show the perfectly holy, righteous, and just God our good works? Or will we say, God, I, I know who I am before your gaze. I know that you see through me and into my heart. I cannot do anything before you. I know that you see the sinfulness of my heart. I know that you see that my heart is dark and filled with thoughts of envy and anger and lust and greed and so much more. I know that you see that it's dark. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Will you say, all I have is Jesus Christ? Before you're thrown, all I have is Jesus. I believe that He lived for me. The righteous life that I should have lived but haven't. I believe that He died offering the substitutionary sacrifice for my sins. And I believe that you raised Him from the dead, conquering sin and death. All I have is Jesus. If that is your confession, if it is your confession that Jesus is all you have, then you have all you need before God. Let's pray together.